You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. And with that, as has been mentioned, um, Ashley Roke is joining, uh, sorry, Ashley Lynn Hankst. This is the first time introducing you since, that's exciting, um, is gonna be sharing the sermon today. So Ashley, I will turn it over to you. Thanks for being with us. All right. I had a friend in her mid forties who only dated younger men. She told me that she only dated men about 20 years younger than her because she believed that men her age came with baggage. Okay, let that sink in. This woman purposely swiped right on men from 21 to 29 because anyone older than that she believed came with baggage and she didn't wanna deal with someone who had baggage. Even though it might be unique to you that a woman could look at men this way, it is not unusual for us to imagine older men treating women and men, hello, we ho, their age this way. And in some ways we have accepted the myth of baggage as almost okay, as something to expect in our society. Now, before I begin, I don't think for one minute it is morally wrong to be in a romantic relationship with someone in which there is an obvious age gap. Love is a mystery and it has its own way of showing up. I'm not here to debate or to provide some false rules about romance. That's not what this talk is about. I believe that love is incredibly complicated and unique. And it is a miracle that any of us have the courage to step into something as intimate and as fragile as love. So this talk is not about age gaps. This is about unpacking the myth of baggage and deconstructing the toxic experience of judging certain people. When we think of relationship baggage, we often think about dating and newer relationships. But I believe this myth plagues long-term relationships and marriages as well. When we talk about someone having baggage, when we think of ourselves as possibly having baggage, we sort of put luggage tags on a variety of different circumstances. We use the term baggage for anyone who is not a virgin or who is a virgin. Someone who struggles with depression, has anger issues, trust issues, daddy issues, someone who is codependent, someone who is suffering from sexual trauma, someone who, who was in a bad relationship in the past, a former addict, someone with kids, that's a big one, someone who doesn't want to have kids. We think they are weird for not wanting to procreate. Someone with family drama, a brother in jail, another who can't keep a job, Someone with custody battles, credit card debt is often understood as baggage, student loan debt, someone who is bitter about being black or gay or being a woman. These are things that we stigmatize as being, as having baggage. 
Basically, we call baggage anything that could suggest that our partner might actually be a human being or anything that establishes we are not the center of our partner's universe or that they may have a life, have had a life before we came along. We have created a culture in which we stigmatize people with the toxic myth of relationship baggage. What does it mean to stigmatize? To stigmatize is to describe or regard someone or something as worthy of disgrace or great disapproval. It is easy to connect and to get to know someone until we find out they have something on this list. Then we check out. And when we do so, we are essentially judging them. Jesus told us to judge not, and yet we judge people all the time when we accept this myth of baggage. It also works in the opposite way if we stigmatize ourselves with luggage tags and look at our current circumstances as something to be ashamed of, then we assume no one could love us because we have baggage. The problem with this kind of thinking, besides the obvious, is that it objectifies people. It makes another human being an object for consumption. It makes you an object for someone else's consumption. Dating is a lot like buying a car. Are they the right package? Do they come with all the bells and whistles and gadgets? Am I getting everything I would get from a newer model? Never mind who we are and what we bring to the table. If they have a luggage tag, they have to go. The myth of baggage is what drove the purity culture. For some of us here, from the time we were preteens, we were told that God wanted us to be sexually pure and to save ourselves from marriage because our sexual purity is the only thing that will save us from getting divorced, from becoming like 50% of like Americans. The more we give ourselves away as women, the less of ourselves we will be able to offer our husbands on our wedding night. We are objects. When we have sex before marriage, something good and wonderful is taken from us and we, it cannot come back. Friends, that is a lie. We were told a lie. Nothing leaves you never to return. Nothing goes away from you that you can't get back. We were taught to see ourselves as objects instead of living, breathing, sexual human beings who are on a journey of self-discovery and growth. We have to actively call out that kind of thinking and replace it with reality. The lies and toxicity of the purity culture morph in different ways with our larger secular culture. What's striking about my friends who only dated younger men is that many men feel the same way about women her age. Many people choose not to date women 30 and older because they assume they come with baggage. Friends, if we are not careful, we will perpetuate the very toxicity we suffer from. Now I want to clarify, we can sometimes use the list of things we call baggage as a way of filtering people out. The only time this is healthy is when the list begins with you. For example, if you decide you don't wanna have children, you are not stigmatizing someone with children. You're staying true to your needs and wants and living honestly. 
that begins and ends with you. You are staying true to your needs. That begins with you. Also, there is nothing wrong with looking at someone's current negative behavior and making a decision to disconnect based off consistent patterns. If they are consistently violent, can't keep a job or constantly make you feel bad about yourself, it is not wrong or unloving to prefer someone who is peaceful and can keep a job. But if you are cutting out a whole population of people from your dating pool because they might actually be human beings or their life makes you not the center of their universe or they had a life before you came along, that is feeding into this toxic myth of baggage. It's obvious that this concept of baggage is disproportionately applied to women. In our society, we praise men for having suffered and survived difficult experiences, right? Men are so tough and so brave. We make great concessions for male veterans who suffer from PTSD and rightly so. But do we honor women for surviving trauma? Do we celebrate their resilience and their strength? Being a woman who survived sexual assault and now struggles to trust another human being intimately means you now come with baggage. No one will honor you for the strength and courage and deep self-compassion required to fight to flourish after having been so badly hurt. But we praise men for continuing to take care of their children after a divorce because it's always the ex-wife's fault, right? But if a woman has kids from a previous relationship, we aren't taking that on. You often hear, she's got kids from another man, I don't want that baggage. She's now an object, like a car with too many miles, instead of a human being with a history and a heart and her own life. She's now an object instead of someone worthy of love, compassion, and connection. I think what is at the core of this baggage ideology is our issues around control. We want to find someone we can control or easily influence. We desire a relationship that projects an image we can control. It is so much easier to influence a young woman who has never been in a serious relationship than it is to bullshit a woman in her late 40s. It is easier to manipulate and control a young guy than a man who has enough money to live on his own without you. We do not actually want to connect with a human being who is equally mature, equally wise, who will call us out on our hypocrisy. We don't really want to enter into a deep, meaningful, genuine relationship. We have no tolerance for that kind of vulnerability. We want to believe we got everything under control. We don't want to wrap our lives around someone else's mistakes, but we secretly want them to be willing to do that for us. We don't want someone we actually have to be patient with, having to work through issues around depression and sexual trauma and credit consumer debt and multiple families, that requires patience. It's so strange because patience is the first thing Paul wrote that was needed when it comes to love. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. 
It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Friends, treating people as if they have baggage is not acting out of love. It does not promote a culture of human flourishing. It causes shame, lots of shame, and unnecessary shame. When we feed into the myth of baggage, the very thing we want from others becomes the very thing we choose not to give. Patience, openness, love, belonging, and connection. The Bible doesn't have much in it about dating, but nowhere in scripture does Jesus feed into the myth of baggage. The woman at the well in John's gospel had five husbands and the guy she was currently sleeping with was not her husband. Jesus said this. Jesus knew this, and yet Jesus did not treat her like she had some stigma. He did not avoid her or treat her like an outsider, like some parasite he could not be seen with. He entrusted to her one of the greatest spiritual truths that impacts all of humanity. True worshipers will worship the Father, not in rituals or obedience to laws, but through their spirit and in truth. When Jesus met doubting Thomas after the resurrection, surely a man with trust issues, he stepped into that relational distrust and rebuilt it with him. Jesus rebuilt Thomas's trust by inviting him to put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. When Jesus reunited himself with a man who promised to protect him, and who ended up betraying him three times, a man whose immediate past indicated he had no backbone. He forgave Peter, accepted him, as and invited Peter to be part of the greatest movement the world has ever known. There is nothing in scripture that suggests Jesus put people in a box or labeled them as having baggage. There is nothing in scripture that suggests Jesus fed into or believed this myth of baggage, and neither should we. We should actively reject it. Now I want to clarify again, not every person you date or meet is going to be the right person for you to have a romantic relationship or even a friendship with. And in no way should you tolerate someone who is actively abusing you. What I am hoping to deconstruct is this quick dismissal of whole groups of people. The myth of baggage should be completely replaced by acceptance and openness to our common humanity. And that can only begin when we accept our own humanity. When we accept ourselves and are honest about our own shortcomings, then we can begin to see the gifts of imperfections in others. We must work towards seeing the gifts of our imperfections if we are going to be open to the imperfections of others. The Christian life is about embracing a newness of life. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining to what lies ahead. There is no judgment in Philippians 3.13. There is no hatred of the past or obsessive nostalgia. Paul is implying an openness towards the possibilities of the future. When you meet someone new, whether it be a friend or someone you're interested in, start a new chapter. Maybe you're in a relationship now where things are coming up and it's tempting to write them off as being unworthy of your time and energy because you're uncomfortable with what you perceive as baggage, start 
a new chapter. Look at them the way Christ does. Everyone, everyone is worthy of love, belonging, and connection. That is Brene Brown's description of wholehearted living in her book, The Gifts of Imperfections. I highly recommend it. But come back to that. Everyone is worthy of love, belonging, and connection. In Ephesians, it says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. The title of this talk is Lies Christian Women Believe, The Myth of Baggage. And even though the myth of baggage applies to all genders, it disproportionately applies to women, in particular women who were raised in the evangelical church. Before I close, I want to show you a video that debunks this concept of baggage, specifically for those who have suffered from the toxicity of the purity culture. In this video, a couple of women share some of the messages they heard in youth group. I'm gonna share it right now. So what analogies have you heard about sexual purity specifically with girls? So um, I remember the first like official purity talk that I ever had was in middle school and it was with one of my um, female science teachers. I remember she described it like a piece of tape and saying how if you stick a piece of tape to something it might stick really well the first time but then if you take it off and keep trying to stick it on other things eventually it won't stick. You have a lollipop and then you unwrap it and you lick the lollipop, right? And like that's great, but then like other people start like licking the lollipop, or like you keep licking the lollipop, and then it's like handed off to someone else, and it's like, all right, do you want this? And it's like, no, it's gross, and everyone's licked it. I was at a girls' conference um, for for church in junior high, and the speaker held out this like pretty little present and said that that was who we are, and that was who we are in the minds of Christ, and she dropped on the ground and stomped on it. And I kept thinking that she would break out a new box, but she never did. He had a bouquet of roses that he handed out to everyone at the very beginning of his talk. And he said, you guys look at the roses and just pass them around. So he began to talk about um, just sex and just in the biblical context. But at the very end, he had everybody hold up the roses and he had kept one rose in his hand that he held onto during the entire speech and he compared the two. One, you know, you like rub petals when you see a flower, the stems were broken, and some of the kids had picked off the petals, some of them didn't have petals at all. And he held up the two and he said, who wants this rose? You know, and I, my heart broke when I heard that. He told me that uh, girls that have sex outside of marriage shouldn't be allowed to, um, to say that they're pure. And that obviously pissed me off to no end because I lived that and felt that and it was completely not the God that I know. My worth was wrapped around being sexually pure. So if I wasn't sexually pure, then I wasn't worthy or I wasn't worthwhile or I didn't have worth. The church, I think, puts 
too much of an emphasis on this like need to like control women's bodies and cover them up um, to avoid sin when like the actual problem is like the way people think and the way people are looking at women's bodies and trying to use them and um, consume them. It really built into a lot of shame and um, actually even a, a coming to terms with my faith and not being sure if I believed it anymore because it felt like it was just something that was told to uh, to control me rather than something that people understood, which is cliche, but where I was at. There's this whole modesty culture, and women are told that we can't wear a certain thing or we can't act a certain way, and anything that we do could stumble our brothers, and that's not something we should do. It's implicitly said that if we do something that is in any way immodest, it's our fault for what happens, and it's not their fault for their actions, because we should have just been saving them. And so there's this fear put into them where instead of wearing like a modest swimsuit to reveal your dignity, it's to hide your insecurities. I have to check my heart too. Think of what's the point of shaming girls? Who's benefiting from making an environment where women are put at the blame? So you're gonna destroy the rose, but instead it represents hmm. the stigma of, okay. of what purity is. So you can destroy it however which way you want. <laughs> We're like a beautiful flower because it's all about what society wants. Friends, you are worthy of love, belonging, and connection. You deserve all that life has to offer. Life is a journey and exploring who you are is part of the road before us. Your youth pastor was wrong. Your senior pastor lied. The guy on Tinder is a douchebag. There is no such thing as relationship baggage. No matter what, you are worthy of love. No matter what others say or how they make you feel, you are worthy of respect and connection. You have what it takes to live the life you want, to cultivate the love you have, or to find the love you long for. You are a human being, and that is something to be grateful for. The single craziest, most beautiful thing you will ever do is to trust another human being with your heart. And that is the way it is, no matter what your circumstances. And you never know where that connection might come from. Start a new chapter, cultivate an openness to your own humanity so that you know what it feels like to have that openness to the humanity of others. Everyone is worthy of love, belonging, connection, as are you. Look for the gifts of our imperfections and you might be surprised by the love that you find. So thank you. Are there any uh, 
thoughts, questions, uh, things you guys want to share? Floor is open. Thanks uh, so much, Ashley. I just, my, I have more of a comment. Maybe it'll turn into a question. I was thinking when you were talking about baggage in general, um, that I, I, maybe you see it this way too, but I feel like we live in a culture that in general is like less interested in journeying with people in their, and I know that baggage is a myth in, especially in the negative ways used, but I mean, in general, we're people with stories, right? We're people with backgrounds and experiences. Um, and, you know, I'm somebody that embraces the idea that, you know, my brokenness isn't necessarily a liability it's actually kind of an asset um that we can we can turn it into that but i just wanted to comment and say i think in general we live in a culture that doesn't really um want to um i guess journey with other people through their brokenness or or embrace other people's brokenness and stories that you know what i mean we feel i think so entitled in in this culture that why should i have to deal with this difficult person whether it's in my job or in my relationship you know i should you know want this kind of idealized picture of of you know a better work situation or or a better relationship or you know that kind of, i don't know i just feel like in general we're just not willing, and this is a fine line issue, right? But I, I feel like in general, we're not really willing to embrace the brokenness of others in our lives and, and willing to, you know, be that and embrace that first Corinthians 13 passage, you know, love is long suffering, love is patient, you know, love is ultimately, you know, really sacrificial or, or, you know, forgiving, I guess. And um, I don't know, I'm, I'm naturally kind of a person who, I feel like um, I'm more like my mom and in, in that I struggle with codependency a little bit, but um, I just feel like, in, I'm wondering if you see it this way too, Ashley, that we in general are living in a society that is hyper-individualistic and me-centered and not really willing to, I guess, embrace the brokenness of others. Do you see it that way? Um, do you, I don't know, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, 100%. Um, I just want to be careful not to um, internalize that as like a permanent identity. I am broken. I am, yeah. this. you know, like, well, I, I'm saying that even like brokenness, you know, is not, I'm not seeing it as a liability at all. I'm just saying that's part of our story that we come to the world, you know, kind of, uh, lacking, lacking is maybe a better way to put it, that, you know, life is you know, full of trauma and difficulty, and we can kind of make peace with that, and we can make peace with it in others and, and in ourselves. And maybe that's maybe that's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think I think part of what I find helpful about what you're saying is the way I see it is like we're accepting that we're not robots; we're human beings. Yeah. Which means Jen is patient, and I am not, <laughs> <laughs> and that's okay. I I can grow to be more patient, but Jen will always excel in this. And I will always have a challenge with this. That doesn't mean I'm broken. That just means I'm a human being. Sure. Like, yeah. Who's going to need to read a couple more books and meditate a little bit more and ask for Jesus's help and all that. But yeah, that's good. Thanks. Anyone else have any ideas or thoughts?
do you think actually that the teaching because i think a lot of us grew up with that kind of purity thing and at some point we have to unravel it all <laughs> and find value separate from just that and um but do you think the grip of that teaching is loosening in the church in the church today or do you think it's still there um what what are your thoughts on on where we're going there seems to be at best, a lot of confusion in evangelical Christianity right now, and at worst, it's it's hunkering back down into into purity. Um, what what do you see? Uh, I well, when you talk about the church, you're not talking about central, right? Because central not, guys no, are like I would never put central in the same category. Yeah. The broader church, we're an enigma for sure. Uh, oh, incredibly hopeful and enigma. Like you give me so much hope. I think it's going back to um, the the purity culture, as you say, like hunkering down. And their their the rhetoric around it is, oh, we're not gonna kiss dating goodbye, but we're gonna go back to. You should be ashamed if you have sex before marriage. Like you were, it's still there. It's just not. They're trying to repackage it in a way that doesn't have Josh Harris tied to it, um, but still seems cool and sexy to do. You know. Yeah, I, I think uh, the core of that is this idea of like baggage. If you do that, you are now somehow like hurting your future. You're destroying your future. Um, but yeah, that's what I think. But what do you think, Nathan? Do you think? Well, I, I, I don't, I'm less connected to those circles than I was. And I think I ran from it, you know, because of it. But I've been thinking a lot about that um, recently. And I wrote, I just finished and turned in a paper about my experiences and purity culture and unraveling it and finding a new sexual ethic and you know like where I got to as a 40 year old man <laughs> it took so long but the most devastating part of it I think is that we've chosen that sexuality and purity as the one defining the thing to define your relationship with God with not love yeah. of your neighbor not the action it takes to support those who have less not anything else and it becomes so incredibly dangerous because now if you do, if, if whatever you do sexually, it affects your whole idea of who God is and what God is. Um, and you're not making right, just decisions for yourself and your partner. You know, it, it just gets so, it's so harmful, I think. Um, and I'm hoping, you know, my, my optimistic side wants to believe that maybe, maybe we're finding our way through it, but it doesn't, there are times it doesn't feel like it. Yeah. Um. I just have to say, I, I traveled recently for the first time and at LAX, I saw a, a guy, like a young man wearing a hoodie that said virginity rocks on it. And I just went on Instagram and just typed in virginity rocks. And there's like 22,000 posts with that tag in it. So I don't think that's going away, but you know, like you said, it's not, we're not kissing day to day goodbye anymore. It's like virginity rocks now. <laughs> so do you, know if, Jen, do you know if that was a, a if, if it's a Christian hashtag in particular, or is it more like just like a secular, I don't know. Slogan? No, it's, it's Christian. Like if you, I'm looking at it now, it's all Christian. Okay. So it, yeah. it is, it is purity culture repackaged, yes. absolute culture. All right. Yep. Yeah, one of the things that I hear a lot of people say about how why they feel so hurt by Joshua Harris is that it the purity culture was packaged as a promise. So if you 
don't have sex, if you don't do these things, then your marriage will be fine. And they just got married to someone that they weren't necessarily like sexually attracted to, but they knew that they were, they checked off all of the purity culture boxes and their marriage just crashed, you know, or maybe they were attracted, but they weren't told that there are other skills, you know, anyway, I just put a a link in this book. Yes. I just put a link in this, uh, in the chat. Uh, I go to Claremont school of theology. It is extremely progressive seminary. Um, and they taught us this book about sexual ethics. And I think it's very helpful. She's Catholic and um, she has a really good sexual ethic that I think might be helpful for those who struggle with this. It's a little textbooky, but you can skim through it. Chapter seven has, I think what most people are looking for. But um, yeah, any other thoughts? I have just a couple of thoughts that I was gonna say. It's really hard as I think about these themes to separate the dynamic of power. Um, and I know you touched on this, but like each of these, and I think, I think that video you shared, especially at the end, um, I think one of the, one of the people sharing noted, like when you really think about it, who is this benefiting? And in my head, I was like, well, duh, <laughs> like men in power, which it all, like we always come back. I'm like, you know, it's, it's, I laugh because it's uncomfortable, but it's like, it's sad. Like all these things, it's like, why do we do this? Like, why, why, you know, it was named, like, why did this become the thing that we focused on um, within Christianity, right? Like within all these subcultures, like, oh yeah, power, because those who have been in power for thousands of years are infinitely creative in forming and shaping ways to stay in power uh, through different lenses that take you a while to get to the bottom of it and be like, wait, who is this helping? So I just wanted to note that in that video, seems that's a great question that all of us should be asking when we encounter these things, right? Is like power dynamics, like who is this helping? Who is this not helping? Because um, I mean, I think I, I thought I had the thought too, Jen, when you, I've seen those, uh, I've seen those hats and shirts and stuff. And it occurred to me too, insofar as it is used religiously, socially, culturally as a means of suppressing, then yeah, that's like really bad. It also occurred to me too, like, I know, you know, people that are um, um, asexual, right? Like, uh, you know, and they're, you know, um, I think it's important to make space for that, right? And I know people who are not asexual and just are um, voluntarily celibate. And like, and I was trying to say like, yeah, but why does it, <laughs> When, why when I see just like you, Jen, like why when I see that, I'm like, ugh. It's like because that has been weaponized. And that's and and then it comes to the question, it's like, okay, then why would we weaponize this who's weaponizing? It's like the people who ultimately stand um, to gain the most and to hold the most amount of power and privilege are the ones who've con- us, me, people like me, are the ones that have constructed these systems to say, hey, if I can get you to think that it's really just you being an awful, shameful person, then I get to um, reap the benefits of having you feel disempowered and not having a voice. Um, So I think that's just a really important piece of all of this too. And it also occurred to me, the final thought, as we've talked about (laughs) a lot for the last four years, especially, um, but the idea of projection, 
right? And and I'm trying to decide if I'm gonna name names or not. And each week, and including this last week, there are more evangelical pastors, there are more mega church pastors, there are more theologians and evangelical authors one by one by one that these stories come out and they are sexual assaulters and they are in some cases pedophiles like who have who have credible stories of assaulting not just young women but children and i had this you know talk with my mom <laughs> um you know, we we're talking about earlier about all of our families on this journey. My mom has become very vocal about this and become very like, let's burn it all down. <laughs> I don't think she'd ever say that, but like every time I talk with her, she's like, what, like, this is awful. Like there's all these men are just story after story. Um, and it just occurred to me that, that all of these people that so many of us grew up with and continue sometimes to read and hear quotes of, it's all projection. Like Rob, you know, Robbie Zacharias, like, um, all of these ministries that have been founded on sexual purity, the, the men saying purity is the most important thing, you know, like blah, blah, blah. And it's all trickling down to shame and disempower and take the voice away from usually young women, but then throughout, throughout their lives are the ones who have been by objective standards, the most sexually impure. Right. Um, so yeah, I guess. There's a lot yeah. there, but Max, can I really speak helpful. to that? That's sure, a really, was, yeah, that's a really good observation. I just wanted to add on to that. I, I just recently for my ordination um, had to go through a sexual boundaries course um, and we had to dialogue about this. And one of the things that I realized and to piggyback on what you're saying that the, um, the this, this, this preoccupation with sexual boundaries in these purity culture type churches these pastors are the ironic thing and the projection element here is that by kind of obsessing over like sexual boundaries and purity culture that these pastors are actually guilty of violating the minds and bodies of others by by doing this and so there's actually kind of a built-in fetishizing but there's actually this kind of built-in violation of sexual boundaries by the pure in the purity culture itself they're violating with their authoritarianism and their theology of sex their theology of marriage they're actually violating the minds and bodies of others by 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 using theology to basically you know what I mean control and to project like that. So it's interesting how that how that works. But the the actual act of you know these pastors, specifically male pastors, doing this that's actually a, a violation of the minds and bodies of others already. So it, it doesn't surprise me that that would also lead to sexual acting out. You know what I mean? because sex and power are very closely tied together in that way. Um, it's, it's, it's really interesting. Yeah. Good point. Man. No. And that's, a, and that's a great point. It's the same thing, right? It's power both ways. It's control both ways. And I will just say like, uh, similar to white supremacy, I find myself saying like one of the keys for me, right. To try to help beyond all the things we've talked about, like men need to be convicted of this too. Like, I know it's an obvious thing to say, but like that sort of stuff, it's like, you are, beholden imprisoned to your own destructive ideology and you have turned yourself into the monster that you purport to want to avoid right and it's like this whole system that we've that we've 
um, created that it's just like, nobody's free in this. Nobody. Um, this is not good for anybody. And as has been said in, yeah, in chat too, it's like, I guess I'll just end by saying, let's, let's burn it all down. <laughs> yeah. And I think the big takeaway from that point is purity culture is hypersexual culture it, and it, and it objectifies bodies and it, it does the exact opposite of what it actually purports to do. You know what I mean? I think that's what's important to take away from that. It's actually a way of, you know, sexually uh, violating others. Aileen, <laughs> did you want to say something? Yeah, I just wanted to, it was interesting because when I was watching that video, it was who was benefiting and we were talking about women and the control over women. The other thing that I thought was really interesting is I was thinking, wait, when did this start? So when did the push for purity culture get started? Was it around when women were pushing for higher wages? Was it when women were pushing for more control? This was a, cause it was around the like mid, like late eighties to early nineties is when the huge push for purity culture. And it kind of clicked for me. I was like, oh, well that makes sense. As women are trying to become equal with men, the church says, no way, that is not going to be your role. This is your role. It, anyway, it was just an interesting, interesting thought in looking back at history. Mm. I think that that's the, the um, modern push for purity culture, but you know, pe pe men and the church have been controlling women's sexuality for centuries, you know, <laughs> like, like it's, it's been, a weapon for a very, very long time. Yeah. I think there, I think also the eighties provided an opportunity for conservative sexual purity because you had the rise of AIDS and sexually transmitted diseases that scared people. They didn't know where it came from. And so there was a politicalization of it. Even in the Reagan administration, they started spending, it wasn't just evangelical Christians, right-leaning conservatives spent billions of dollars on abstinence-only teaching in schools and all of that. It wasn't until years later, I think the, the Obama administration did a, did a research, spent night or, or concluded a nine-year research to find out if anyone who actually went through abstinence-only training actually was different than anyone else. And they concluded, no, there's no difference between people who go through that training and those who do not. And then the Obama administration reduced all that funding and all that teaching. But I think there was an opportunity there where then they said, see how scary this can be. See how this can be. It's so dangerous. And they grasped onto it and politicized it and then created, as others have said, a spiritual weapon to continue to control the, 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 the thoughts and um, bodies of, of mostly women you know, somehow, I mean, it affected men too. And guys, we can probably have a conversation about what it did, did for us, but not nearly to the same level that it, it affected women. Speaking of, are there any other ladies who want to maybe share their thoughts? Any women identified in the room who'd like to share? I just want to shout out Desiree and Cassandra's comments. Definitely. I lead an older, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I'm just thinking about, I mean, I feel really grateful that I didn't listen to my like church camp leaders because um, I would have lost out on like a lot of 
love basically and relationships that were so um, informative to who I am as a person. But in hearing this, and like I'm thinking of Luis, he he went to a Catholic school, so he heard about sexuality in the church every day. If I, as a woman, heard that every day, as a child who was um, sexually assaulted and eventually raped, I can't, it's so sad to me to think about how that would make me feel so worthless um, already on top of the you know, weight and guilt that I felt to hear that my body was now impure. That just makes me so sad and, um, and angry. And so I just wanted to bring light to that point that what about all the trauma victims, you know? Yeah. The purity culture exasperates the trauma. Doesn't offer any kind of healing. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. I just want to say thank you. Um, Sarah, for being that vulnerable with us, and we hold your story. Yeah, I think one of the most dangerous things the purity culture teaches is that, you know, obviously, if you have sex before you're married, you lose, you know, the lollipop, you lose part of yourself to give to your future husband, right? But also, if you have been traumatized or hurt by someone else, you are less of a, a good person. Like you, you are somehow, and that is such a lie. It's such a lie because whether you had an easy, yeah, victim blaming, whether you had an easy upbringing or not, life is difficult and life is hard and it's a journey and you don't lose yourself. I mean, you might lose a sense of safety, but it can be rebuilt. You can't have that back. Um, and so that's why I'm just so careful not to like internalize this very evangelical mentality of like, we're all sinners and we're all broken. I just, I can't. I know a, a church that I love so much. He says, um, we're all more messed up than we think we are. That's like his like motto for the church, his tagline. And I'm just like, no, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not going to internalize that. I am not more messed up than I think I am. You know, I am more human and more in wonderfully imperfect and more lovely than I think I am, you know, and, and that kind of mentality allows me to have an openness to not just my past, but to what may happen in the future, you know, and that's what we need to kind of cultivate in people, not a fear around sex or not a fear around divorce or a fear around um, any, you know, things falling apart, you know, I, it's, we, I think the progressive Christian culture is doing a great job deconstructing uh, the purity culture. There's so many resources out there. Um, I think that it's helpful that we co constantly review it because it, it can be more and more subtle as we, as we grow. But I do think the future should be all about establishing a, a healthy sexual ethic for youth. What are we teaching youth as church leaders? Um, we just can't not talk about it because you need to prepare them for when they are in high school and or in senior in college. Um, you know, you don't want anybody to be manipulated or, you know, you know what I'm saying. I, I am, I'm recently connecting, I recently connected with someone who um, leads a human trafficking organization. And she says the, the, the biggest victims these days are these girls who study all their high school career, who don't really go out and party or anything. They're just so focused on, 
on getting into the right school that when they finally get into the right school, that they, the moment they have any kind of a, uh, attention from a man, they don't know how to handle it. They don't even see themselves as date worthy. So how do we like help youth develop a sense of ownership over who they are and their own identity um, and their own sexual ethic, um, drilling in within them that they are loved and worthy of love no matter who they are, no matter where they find themselves on their journey. Um, yeah. Yeah, thank you so much for touching on this. Um, this was a subject that I wanted to come to just because it was such a disservice to every single person who grew up in the evangelical church. Cause I mean, I know my parents never talked to me. There was never a discussion at my school because it was all private education, all private Christian schools. And when there's not talk about it, it becomes even more of a thing. Right. And, um, and so, yes, thank you for saying that we need to talk about it because, um, you know, especially as you know, young people growing up in this world, like these are things that they are going to come across. And this is, you know, these are good things. It is not, <laughs> it's not, um, it's not bad and evil. And, you know, like we're taught, except for when you get married, then you're supposed to flip a switch and everything's supposed to be fine. Um, but anyway, thank you for touching on that. Cause I completely agree. Yeah. And we gotta get rid of this idea that if you do it right, somehow it's going to be perfect. Like it's a journey. You could, you're constantly maturing who know, you know, stay open. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that a lot of the resistance coming from evangelical circles towards progressive Christianity is really focused on sexuality, like almost as much as theology in general. It's like the problem that a lot of evangelical pastors and leaders have with progressive Christianity is, is not not necessarily, well, it is certainly about their change in beliefs, right? The deconstruction of, you know, you know, their hermeneutic, how they read the Bible. But other than that, the big issue is their, their biggest fear is sexual sexuality and specifically the inclusion of the LGBTQ community and how the sexual morals of, you know, of our lives have been completely radically changed. And so it's interesting that I think for a lot of evangelicals, that those are the two big fears about progressive Christianity. And it's really, it's really uh, the same fear and or the same level of fear. It's not just fear over a new hermeneutic, a new way of reading the Bible, but also a fear of changing in sexual ethics. So it's, it's, this is a really big issue. Yeah. Yeah. I'm convinced that the LGBT issue in the Bible in Christian churches today has nothing to do with being gay. It has everything to do with gender. If you're a woman, you do this. You do not do this. And if you're a man, you do this and you do not do this. This is all about control. How do you control a society? You know, that's just my thoughts. But anybody else wanna chime in before we wrap it up? Yeah, Bob wrote, I love Nadia Boltz Weber's symbol of healing for women who were wounded by purity culture. They nailed their purity rings and she melted them down and, ca and cast a gold statue of a vulva and presented it as an award to Gloria Steinem. Did you guys see that on Instagram a couple of years ago? That was really cool. Desiree, your last comment is, yeah, shocking. 
Well, uh, maybe I'll just say thanks. Thank you so much, Ashley, for being here and uh, really great um, talk and convo thereafter. And always love, you know, having you here, obviously. And um, giving us a lot to think about, especially as parents. Uh, sorry, like thinking about how I'm going to raise two daughters in, in a non-purity culture way. You know, Emily and I talk about that actually not real often, but often enough. And um, just you made me think about how as a church moving forward with we have, you know, increasing number of uh, young families and children with us and may uh, you're going to be, you know, we're going to be talking more about how to how to process this in a healthy way and, and help our children form, you know, really healthy and positive sexual ethics. And, and uh, yeah, we'll talk more about that. And you've, you know, this is not going away, this issue. But uh, I'm excited about seeing where, where it all leads for us as a community. But thank you so much, Ashley. Yes, please go. I'm a firm believer that if you want to know what justice looks like, just ask the most vulnerable person in the room. Yes. So if you want to know what purity culture, what a good sexual ethic would look like, just line up a group of women and have them talk, th talk it through. Amen. Yeah. Amen. No, that's dynamite. That's a great point. I'm not going to forget that. Thank you so much. All right, everybody. Well, 1132. Thanks for being here. Um, we are concluded. Love and peace. And hopefully see you next week. Thanks so much, Ashley.